Welcome to 8020 with Pareto Health. I'm Andrew Cavanaugh. And I'm Andrew Clayton. On today's episode, we'll follow our standard format. We'll spend the first couple of minutes giving you one piece of knowledge, and today that's going to be on the topic of what's known as leverage trend. We'll then talk with Seth Denson from GDP slash and we'll conclude uh, this episode as we do all episodes with our segment called, You Know They're a Knucklehead When. For today's knowledge segment, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about leverage trend. Um, and Clayton, I know there's nothing more exciting than than trend and and the super version of it, leverage trend. Um, so let's get after it. What what is leverage trend for our listeners? It's the phenomenon scenario where big claims get bigger at a much faster rate than small claims. Phenomenon is a very complicated word. Could you spell that? P H nomenon. Yeah. So big claims get faster than smaller claims. Why why is that the case? So I'll give you the academic example of it. Take an employer that has a $50,000 stop-loss deductible, and let's just say that they have a $100,000 claim uh, in the 2022 policy period. So in that scenario, the employer pays the first $50,000. The stop-loss policy pays the next $50,000. If they keep that same deductible for next year, so for their 2023 policy period, and let's assume that nothing magical happens to the claim, meaning that it doesn't become more complicated, but medical trend applies, and I'll keep a real simple medical trend of 10%. The employer still paid $50,000, but the stop-loss carrier uh, ended up paying 60000 So it absorbed all of that $10,000 in trend. Uh, and so from a loss standpoint, the stop-loss carrier's loss actually uh, increased by 20%. So it did the math there, um, as opposed to just the 10% medical trend. So let's, there's a lot there. Um, and Thank so let's, you. yeah, let's go and break that down a little bit. Let's just start. You said medical trend 10%. So first of all, that's the wrong number, but that does not surprise anybody that you use the wrong number, but it's nice and round, which I appreciate, right? So if you're going to do math, use big round numbers. So medical trend, the concept is that a broken leg today costs a hundred bucks and next year it's going to cost something more than a hundred bucks. And you're saying it's 110 bucks. So that 10% cost increase is what's known as medical trend. And that's on all first dollar claims, right? Correct. Let's just be clear on a couple of things. One is that we actually expect medical trend uh, to start to increase a little bit. Um, and I'm getting off on a tangent a little bit, but we're seeing inflation, obviously, in the economy today. I forget what the, the numbers that I saw recently, 7 8% inflation. And at some point, that's going to impact medical claims. And the easy way to think about that is that about a half of a hospital's uh, costs are related to labor. Uh, there's a shortage of nurses and doctors. They are having to pay them more to get them to continue to work. And at some point, you're going to see that in the claim. So anyhow, we'll probably see a little bit of pressure on medical trend. Separate that from premium trend for me for a minute. What's the difference between medical trend and premium trend? Medical trend is obviously just the, the medical uh, increase in cost of medical care. Premium trend is, most employers look at it as what the average premium increases, but it takes medical trend and it applies the administrative expenses to it. So your taxes, your your true admin fees of processing and paying claims, additional fees, reinsurance charges, consultant fees, commissions, et cetera. That's so almost, it's a compounding effect. That's almost a list. That's almost like a game of Clayton. Mention every insurance term you can. So yes, all those things go into premium trend. The other thing, the other thing that I think about with premium trend is that um, while the broken leg goes up a year later, your team in general is going to be very similar a year later, but they're going to be a year older. And so it's also taking into account changes in demographics make up the change in premium. So again, 
medical train medical trend we defined as you know the broken leg costs 110 bucks whereas last year it cost 100 and then premium trend is what the actual fully loaded premium would go up for a number of different factors now let's go back to your example i think what you said is the employer in 2022 self-insured has a fifty thousand dollar specific stop loss they have a hundred thousand dollar claim so they pay 50 the carrier pays 50. And then you said, okay, next year, let's assume that they keep the same $50,000 spec and they have that same claim. What type of claim was it? I forget. It was you, uh, your lobotomy. Uh, we talked about my lobotomy in a previous episode. I can't have it, a lobotomy every it, week. It, we it, gets, it, gets, it, gets, it gets so tiring. Um, okay. So we'll go, we'll go with um, your... Um, knee replacement. Double knee replacement. Double knee replacement. Yeah, we actually, we could go with uh, uh, rotator cuff surgery just for fun. Shouldn't cost there 100 grand. Uh, but a <laughs> rotator cuff surgery that goes awry was a hundred grand. Now it's 110 grand, same spec level to 50. So the employer paid 50. Um, the total cost is now 110. The stop loss carrier now pays 60 instead of 50. And so that's where the, the trend for the stop loss is 20% as opposed to the underlying trend is 10%. So just breaking down your example. Is there an echo in here? Yes. Correct. Yeah. Uh, well, you, you spoke very quickly. Uh, and you used lots of numbers, which you clearly had written down in front of you. Uh, so I'm just making sure that everyone can understand it. So the key things that I think I would uh, leave leave our listeners with is that leverage trend is, again, the phenomena, pH, phenomena, that big claims get bigger faster. And the way to combat that is that you can change your spec level. And if you don't, you should just expect that stop loss premiums will increase faster than the underlying medical trend because of this phenomenon. It's phenomenal. It, truly phenomenal. Yeah, I don't and know you, if there are any a, other. And you're obviously a phenom. Yeah. I was going to say, I can't think of any other versions of that word, but you came up with another one. So that is it. Leverage trend in a nutshell. On today's episode, we are thrilled to welcome our friend, our partner, colleague, probably throw a bunch of other nouns in there, Seth Denton, head of healthcare strategies at Acrisure. Seth, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Insurance is one of those strange industries where everyone has a story how they got into it, and would just love to hear how you how you ended up in the in the field. Yeah, so um, like many, I think it was not by design. I mean, by five years old, I was thinking I was going to be Tom Cruise and you know fly fighter jets until uh, I realized I hate heights and I get motion. Sickness. I thought you meant making cocktails, just to be clear. Well, uh, or I, well, at that time I was running around dancing in my underwear. So I mean, there's a whole lot of references we could have to some some past movies there. Growing up, I thought I would do anything but insurance. My father actually is a pastor of a church, so. My thought of getting into the in eternal insurance business crossed my mind a few times. It was actually my father who talked me out of that. As a matter of fact, my, my senior year, I had declared uh, biblical theology. I was going to go be a biblical theology major. I was going to go play baseball at, uh, there were a couple of Christian schools that had biblical theology departments. I was going to go play ball at and do that and enter into the family business, so to speak. And it was my dad that really kind of talked me out of that, said, if you don't feel called to do that, you probably shouldn't. So those are the guys that uh, end up on TV for all the wrong reasons. So, but nonetheless, so there I was my freshman year, I undeclared, um, didn't play baseball, was trying to figure things out. I, and I changed my major so many times. My guidance counselor in college, I was driving her insane. And she pulled me aside. I think this was like the fifth time I was in her office over the course of my freshman year, changing my declared major. Uh, and she said, Seth, you, you're taking English 1301. Um, you're under no obligation to declare a major at this point. Um, I said, I recognize that, Miss Reed, but if I don't have a goal in mind, if I'm not working towards something, uh, I feel like I will never accomplish anything. So I need to have an objective. And you guys know me well. I'm 
super detail oriented on certain things and uh, very goal driven. So she said, all right, well, what do you, what do you really want to do? I said, I have no idea. She said, what do you like to do? I said, I really like to play golf. And she said, okay, well, are you any good? I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm terrible. I said, on a good day, I'm an 18 handicap and I'm, there aren't very many good days when I golf. So she said, all right, here's what you do. She said, uh, Wednesday, she's looking at my schedule. She goes, Wednesday, you don't have any classes midday. I'm like, that's right. She said, all right, go down to the local golf course on Wednesday afternoon, like let's say one o'clock. And as guys are making the turn, ask them what they do for a living that allows them to play golf on Wednesday at one o'clock in the afternoon. And whatever that is, that's what you do. So I took her up on her advice. I went to the golf course. I sat, uh, sat there waiting and Guys, I said, excuse me, sir. Can I ask you what you do for a living? I'm doing a research project for college. Oh yeah, son. I'm I'm in the insurance business, or I'm in the financial services business. Every just about everybody that was still working age uh, was in the financial services or insurance business. And can we, so, can we pause there just I've, for a second? So first of all, your your guidance counselor, whatever the right the right title is, is genius, right? I've never heard of that. She's brilliant, right? Genius. <laughs> and then I would just love to have a camera like on the turn. Hundred percent. <laughs> uh, excuse me sir uh, go away yes i'll take a hot dog and a uh and an IPA, please there, there was a lot I'm of that here. yeah they thought they they thought boy the, the cart girls have gotten very unattractive lately you know because yeah i was i was there very quickly you know kind of in people's face hey can i ask you a question listen it got me to where i am what's the coolest thing nothing to do with insurance what's the coolest thing that one of your clients does or did in terms of a product uh or a service we actually got to represent and still do to this day, at least for now, <laughs> that's my caveat on all of them, but a gaming company that, that developed games and matter of fact, they're Pareto customer as well. They're in the captive and watching the mindset of these guys that their job is to create video games and going to their office and everything that you would think about an office uh, full of gamers is absolutely 100% correct. I mean, I'm talking headphones on, they're literally playing video games for a living. Um, I'd say that one was really cool. And what was, what was cool about it was that what led to another client, which was a professional gaming company. So these are people that esports is a big thing now. I, you know, I still have an Atari. I think that's the highest level of video game that I I've ever achieved in my life. But to, to go into these places that they actually have people that play video games for a living and compete for purses that are millions of dollars. And it's like you, you literally have finger trainers, people that make sure that they're, they don't get arthritis in their fingers from, from pushing the buttons. And, you know, they have these coaches that help them deal with stress to make sure that in that moment where, you know, whatever they're playing against in the video game, uh, wouldn't kill them so they can win the, you know, it, it's insane to see this secondary world that I didn't even know existed. It's pretty cool. So you and your, your firm, the, you, you joke about the C plus student, but you have a tremendous amount of intellectual curiosity and drive. You guys are always pushing on what's next. What do we do next? Where does that come from and how do you organize it? Because there's so many, you know, it, it can be like a loose atom, right? All the junk that's in the system today or all the, I shouldn't say junk, all the new initiatives. How do you filter through all that? How do you guys stay focused on what's really impactful as opposed to the, the latest shiny dangly thing? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, you know, probably early on, we weren't great about that. We, we, we 
we looked for those shiny objects just as much as anybody else. I think uh, John Powder, who's my business partner, and I, we couldn't be more opposite, which I think makes us really good business partners in the way that we no look at things. I have no idea what that's like, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No. <laughs> But in the same way, I think that uh, we're very similar in the idea that we both got into this business a little bit by, you know, I don't say by accident, but somewhat. And but neither of us from day one got into the business and and, then really felt like, okay, well, let's just ride the coattails of this business forever, which is what I think the industry does. Right. Status quo is 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 the optimal game. That's how they golf on Wednesdays, status quo, right? That's it. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, you know, when we brought both of us together and said, okay, we, we both think that this is a, a system that could use an overhaul. How do we do it? What was great was both of us from an educational purpose perspective, and I think that we'll quote it, call it the C plus student thing, works to my advantage because I don't go to the book. I don't go to the book and say, well, here's what the book says we should do. Let's do it. It's, well, I can't really read the book, so let's just figure out a new one and let's just write our own. And and I think that's really it. Now, for the first few years, we were really bad about chasing those shiny objects because everything sounds really good when you're trying to think about doing things different than everybody else. Um, in 2017, I had what, uh, you know, uh, this this moment of clarity in life. I remember sitting down with John saying, dude, you can have my half of this agency for like a six pack and a happy meal because I was so tired of chasing the shiny object and looking for that silver bullet that quite frankly just didn't exist. And so had to kind of come back to it and, and start at the beginning and recognize that we were trying to be good at everything instead of being great at something. And I think that for us, the ability to continue to innovate is recognize that thinking through the complexities of doing something new and unique and different is actually something we're great at. And when you, when you realize that and you stay in your lane with that, two things can happen. One is you can find very quickly those things that will work and figure out a way to implement them very quickly and effectively, not making it complex. I think our, our industry historically thinks, if we, well, if it's not hard, it, we didn't have to work hard enough to do it. And so we got to make it really hard and really complex and do all these Gantt charts and all this other garbage. And like, no, actually, you can get from A to B really easy. It's a straight line. Let's just get there. So we didn't overthink it, I think is probably the, the best quick answer to your question, Clayton, is we just didn't overthink it. It's what's the simple way of, of getting from A to B or A to Z? And once we figured that out, two really things, key things happen. And this is a mantra that we still have today, is we do not go to try to find solutions for our prospects. We don't. We try to find prospects for our solutions. So once we realize what is the thing that needs to happen and how it needs to happen, we say, okay, who needs this? Now let's go find them versus the other way around, which is the way our industry has always worked, where we go in, we learn about a company, we ask them a million questions. We never get around to actually asking them for the business. We just hope someday we've said enough that eventually they'll say yes, which is ridiculous, which is why I think our sales industry's close ratio is so bad. We have a very distinctive process. When we go in to meet with a prospective client, it's four meetings. You get four meetings with us. The first meeting is very quick. It's us telling you about us, why we think we're different, what we do, how we do it. And if that sounds interesting to you, then we'll have a second meeting. And that meeting, I'm going to learn about you. So this is, you're, you're on stage. Tell me all about yourself. And I'm going to ask, and we're going to try to identify challenges and issues that you've got and determine if it's a fit for our solution. The third meeting is us coming back to you saying, we think you're a fit for our solution. Here's how our solution works. And the fourth meeting is we're going to refine that. At the end of that fourth meeting, you're doing business with us or you're not, but we're done doing free work. And so for us, it, it's interesting because in the very first engagement with a prospect, we tell them that process. Hey, listen, we have four meeting process. Here's how it works. So now you know at the end of the fourth meeting, it's your turn to say yes or no. 
but that's when the that's when you're going to determine whether or not to do business with us. And I will. It's amazing how many people will say thank you <laughs> after that. Thank you. It's so it's so refreshing to know when the close is coming, <laughs> when you're actually going to ask us to do business with you. And I'll tell you that if we get people to that fourth meeting, we have about an 80% close ratio because they've invested the time and so have we. But there's been a, a lot along the way who we haven't gotten to that fourth meeting because we've determined they shouldn't. So a long way around the barn to your answer, Clayton, but I think that that, you know, to continue to stay innovative, it's recognizing we know where our lane is and we stay in it. I'll ask you a leading question, Seth, that ties into this, I think. Why is it that the insurance industry has such a hard time succinctly explaining their value proposition? I don't think that they know what their value proposition is. They really don't. You talk to 20 brokers and you ask them, what, what differentiates you? What, what, how do you bring value to your clients? They're going to tell you service. Service is table stakes in this business. You don't do that well, you're out of the business. So, And if, if your differentiator is the same thing that differentiates everybody else, guess what? It's not a differentiator at all. And so what I have prettier spreadsheets, I golf more with Blue Cross, therefore, I think I've got a better relationship with them. I, I mean, I, I don't know what the answer to that would be, but I, I, I think that the vast majority of people in our business could not ar properly articulate a value proposition that they actually believe was true. Or maybe they do believe it's true, but they think it's a differentiator and it's not, i.e. People can think they have great service, and I'm sure they do. Guess what? You can't quantify that till someone's a client anyway. So <laughs> how are you quantifying that differentiator? So I think that that's really a big part of the issue we have in, in, as an industry. You're at a cocktail party. You and Jen are talking to somebody, uh, and they ask you, what do you do? What's your answer? Mm -hmm. I play by play for the Texas Rangers. <laughs> um, I haven't seen you. What's what From, what from my Barca lounger. <laughs> from my Barca lounger. I will tell you, it's funny. Early on, I'd be like, oh, I'm in the health insurance business. You want to talk about clearing a room? uh in front of you very quickly oh hey go oh, i'm so sorry i gotta go say hi to somebody let me go because they know okay i'm about to get pitched right here it comes and so yeah so i tell people that you know that that i'm a business analyst and i help companies uncover ebitda that's trapped in their capex and then when they say okay, then they well, still walk away oh, okay. but at least they <laughs> they do they do but they think i'm really smart oh that guy must know he's them. but it's so, sort of telling yeah. right that we're, we're talking about the talent pool that begins that goes into insurance to begin with um, we talk about the lack of ability to succinctly describe a value proposition because it might not exist. And then we talk about being known as pitching. It paints the industry in not a great light. And yet it is that not great light that allows somebody like you to easily differentiate yourself and excel. And so I would love to hear, again, this is going to be you patting yourself on the back a little bit, but, but what's, what has enabled you? What are some of the things that have made you so easily separate yourself from that, that what I just described? Well, at the risk of, of, of being overly um, appreciative of, of who's on this, I, I, I like to think I surround myself with people that are a lot smarter than me at this. Plus Clayton. Um, plus Clayton. Um, no, but, you know, listen, I think that it is – if if I was the – we'll call it the standard broker, and I hung out in that standard broker circle at standard carrier events, guess what? Probably never challenging my knowledge base. The status quo, the way things work, all of that, it, it continues to to just kind of manifest itself, and we're all the we're, we're the we're the best at nothing, right? But by surrounding myself and the people that I call colleagues, who actually I also call friends, I don't have a lot of friends outside of the colleagues, but but that's because I I live and eat and breathe this world. So it, these are the people I spend time with, you guys and some others, and they're people that are like minded in thought of saying, hey. 
let's challenge each other. Let's think differently about this. And, and I think that's a big part of it. I'm a college dropout. So I don't have that back end. Well, I went to school for this. Therefore, this is the way that I operate. Um, and so I think there, there's two things that have come from that. One is, and I want to say this, I, I don't think that college is for everyone, but I do think that education is. And I made the determination early on when I realized how much college was actually going to cost me without those baseball scholarships and the theology scholarships that I could either come out of college with, at the time, hundred dollars to $150,000 in debt, or I could go work for absolutely next to nothing for the smartest people that I could find and learn as much as I could from them. And I'm going to roll the dice that way. And I did. And I got to work for some really extremely intelligent people in their fields over the last 20 years and or with them. And so for me, I think that it was the the fact that I didn't have that piece of paper on the wall. I knew that I had to try that much harder. I knew that I had to spend that much more time learning and investing and even today. So I'm an early riser. I get up between 4 and 4:30 every morning and I religiously in the mornings research business healthcare, what's going on in the industry, all of those things to try to increase my business acumen because I don't have acumen on a wall. I have to develop that acumen in my brain. What are the one or two things you look at the industry and say, we'll call them myths, maybe some others will call them lies or, or you know, misstatements that you're just like, that is just flat out wrong. Why, why, how do they continue to get away with this stuff? First and foremost, I would say that healthcare and health insurance are synonymous. I think that is that is the big myth that's out there. And I will tell you, you know, you guys talked about the executive and the amount of time that it's getting in front of their eyeballs. They think it's the same, right? Because that's what we've trained them to think. And as long as they do think that it's the same, well, they won't think of it differently. I say all the time, we don't we have a supply chain problem in the United States when it comes to healthcare. That's what it is. It's not an access problem. It's how we act, engage in the supply chain components uh, of healthcare. And I, I, in addition to that, I say all the time that I'm not trying to change what people are buying. I'm trying to change how they're buying it from the perspective of people are buying healthcare, but they're buying it as health insurance. That's how they're buying it. And that, that's a, that's, that's a wrong way of doing it. Billy Bob can buy a truck, but Billy Bob would never buy a $60,000 truck when he could buy a $40,000 truck that does the exact same thing, same color, same features, everything. But he does it every day in healthcare because he doesn't have the information. He doesn't know how to do it. So if we can get there, then that's the way to do it. So I think that part one, that, that would be the first thing that I think is a myth if they continue to lie. The second thing is there's an old adage, don't miss the forest for the trees. Well, in health insurance, we train people that when in reality, they should not miss the tree for the forest. Meaning that 90%, the vast majority of expenses is, is tied up in one or two folks, right? It is in 10% or less of the population. And yet, what do we do? Well, we raise everybody's deductibles. That's going to make the move. That's going to change the needle. We're going to implement a wellness program that all of our healthy people are going to participate in and none of our sick people are because we don't need data to do it. We're just going to just throw something on the wall and hope it sticks. And so by doing that, we actually penalize the 90% of the population that isn't using healthcare by making healthcare less accessible for them, raising deductibles, making it harder to get, all that. So I think that's the myth. I firmly believe that the more you make healthcare free to the user, the lower healthcare cost gets. The more accessible it gets to them, the cheaper it gets, the more effective it is. Um, and that employers all the time, if we can just get them to the point, and you and I, and we, we've all three of us, we've talked about this. It's the milk in the back of the grocery store, right? If you move that to the front, guess what? You avoid all the profit margin that's built into the store and you get people what they ultimately wanted to get anyway. Your kids are old enough to understand that, you know, dad goes to work, works hard, is diligent, has an important job, is an important leader. 
what do you tell them? What do they think your job is? Um, yeah, well, well, my kids think I'm a doctor. I don't know how that happened. And apparently so does my grandmother. That's another story for another day, but, um, you don't want to break, you don't break grandma's heart. <laughs> no, I mean, so I'll, I'll give the readers I just first. So I literally get a call from my mom one day. She goes, Hey, you need to get up to the hospital. Your, your grandmother's in the hospital. I'm like, okay, what's wrong? She goes, and she tells me, and I'm like, okay, what, what, what am I supposed to do? She goes, she won't let the doctors engage with her until you're there. Cause she said her grandson's a doctor and she only trusts him. So of course I have to walk in. I'm like, the doctor's like, Oh, are you the doctor? And I'm like, no, but yeah. Okay. And of course he pulls back the sheet and I nearly lose my lunch. And I'm like, um, you know, and I do the whole perfect on television, like, well, doctor, what's your assessment? Well, I think this is what she needs. Well, I concur. Doctor, go for it. Grandma, you're in good hands. And I walked out the door and lost my lunch. Um, <laughs> but no, so for my kids, you know, listen, I, I, I tell the kids that daddy helps businesses be more successful. That's what daddy does. He helps businesses be more successful. And what does that mean? Well, it depends on the business. What do they, how do they determine success? Is it, is it improving the overall culture of the organization? Well, daddy helps them do that. Is it improving their overall margin or EBITDA? Daddy does that too. Is it managing their overall risks? Yep, daddy can do that. So effectively, that's what daddy does is he just helps businesses be more successful. And, and take that, taking that a step further, and it's actually a kind of, I don't want to say a, our motto here at GDP, but it somewhat is, is that we're, we're people driven to make people's lives better. That, that's what we stand for here. And, and I tell that with everybody that, that comes on board here when I'm interviewing them. I still do orientations. I still think that's an important thing for, for us to do is, is being one of the leaders of the organization is to make sure that people that are coming on board understand the vision. And I tell them something very clear. I don't care what institutional knowledge you have. I care about really two things. One is your give a darn, right? and your desire to impact the lives of others. Um, everybody has to figure out what their why is, right? Why, why are you doing this? Because we're all trading time for, for this. And that's the great equalizer for all of us. I don't care who you are. We all have the same amount of that in a day. So you're trading it for this. Why? Why are you doing it? Why this versus that? And that if this is a place that you can feel like you can be relevant in your life, that you can fulfill that why, then it's great. If you don't think it is, then I will be the first person to help you find where that is somewhere else. But we're driven to make people's lives better. And if we do that, a really powerful thing will happen. We don't have to chase money. Money will chase us. Money will chase us. It'll want to be where we are because people will want to be where we are. Um, and that's a really powerful thing that, that when you can take – and if you think of our organization – the vast majority of people that work on, want to work on our staff are under the age of 30. We have a, a lot of them that are college dropouts. Most of them came from outside of the industry. And that's it. I, I can't teach people to give a darn. But I can teach them this business. It's not that hard. What's something that also gives you a lot of optimism about healthcare and or health insurance? Again, I agree with you. Separate the two um, in, in the U.S. over the next five years. So the optimism I get, I'll start with that, um, is that – I think that the healthcare providers themselves, the people that actually deliver healthcare, are eager to see the system change. And now I'm not talking about the business people that run it because they're not, but I'm talking the people that actually do it, the people that actually deliver healthcare. By and large, the vast majority of them that I speak to anymore are saying it's something that needs to change, and we want to be part of it. That that when you get the people that are actually delivering the goods and services that we're actually buying, now saying I don't want to do it the way we've always done it. Uh, that's really exciting. I think that's why we're seeing a lot more single case agreements that we're getting done with providers and surgeons, things like that, and people willing to get, enter into either direct primary care or direct contract, one-off contracts, things like that. 
it's that provider network that's, I shouldn't say provider network like an Aetna, Blue Cross or anything like that. I'm saying the network of providers, the, the industry as a whole that is saying enough's enough. I want my patient to be better and I don't feel like they should go bankrupt to do that. I don't want to deal with a bureaucracy that is the carrier anymore or even the hospital system that maybe I've sold my practice to that now I'm in bed with the devil. I want to do something different. How do we do it? That to me is very encouraging and, and I'm excited to see where that develops over the next you know, year to five years. Where I see the industry going, I think that we're going to see a very hard push from the large carriers, who there are very few of now, really pushing the big firms, which there are very few of now, uh, that continue to buy up the independents. The broker is still the, we'll call it the the gateway to the to the industry, and more and more of the brokers uh, have been acquired. And I mean, listen, I'm not myself included, right? So I recognize that. I think that as there become fewer and fewer independents, as the big conglomerates become bigger and bigger, the carriers will feel like they have them right where they want them, which is big contingencies, big opportunities to align themselves and fear that we'll pull your appointment and therefore X amount of your dollars are going to go away because you're not going to be able to access us anymore unless you play ball with us. So I think that there's going to be a hard push for that. And I think these bigger firms are going to have to make a difficult decision on do we feel like we have to do that or not. I'm really proud of where I am with Acrisure, and it's a reason I was uh, amenable to taking the role as director of health healthcare strategies for the entire organization, which because I made it very well known. Guys, if you want me to go to the Blue Cross meeting in Gladhand, that's not my I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'm going to give you guys a really bad reputation. And and it was it was very apparent from the executives on down as we recognize the relationships we have there, but we recognize we got to do what's right for our clients. That's our primary relationship. And if you feel that there's a better way, lead us there. Um, that was really encouraging to me. Uh, and and I even said it could cost us contingencies. It could cost us, you know, these dollars that are out there and they're going to be thrown in our face, and we can't get get wooed by that. Because I do think that there's going to be a, a hard push over the next three to five years, and hospital systems in alignment with the healthcare carrier systems, which will try to find themselves in alignment with the broker systems more than ever before, I think are going to be pushing those things. So it's up to the few of us that really do think differently and want to see something different to do it. Uh, and, and hopefully we continue can to do that because at the end of the day, here's the reality. The carrier, the delivery system, the broker, we're all subservient to the end user, which is the client, the CEO and the CFO. And the more of them that wake up to this and say, this is the way I'm willing to do this, the more that it'll actually start moving the needle there. It's been fun watching your evolution. I don't mean that to sound patronizing at all, just that uh, the impact you've been able to have uh, on a per employer basis and then on the number of employers has been uh, been inspiring. So, um, Well, listen, I'd be remiss to say if, if that evolution, there wasn't a lot, of, a significant part of that that was you guys. I mean, listen, our partnership with you is truly that. And there is very little chance, I wouldn't say zero chance because I may have figured it out eventually, but there is very little chance that myself, GDP, or to that end, even Acrisure, uh, would be where it is today without Pareto uh, and without you guys and, and your organization. Thank you for that. Well, we appreciate the partnership, appreciate the kind words, and uh, and absolutely appreciate you jumping on the phone with us today. Thank you very much, Seth. Thanks, Seth. It was fun. Hey, and I think we were actually pretty, uh, we were pretty safe. Yeah, no swear you know, words. Not too much editing. Uh, you did say give a darn, uh, and I thought, well, that's not what we say in Philadelphia. Um, but then, <laughs> but then, if I corrected you, that meant we couldn't air it in Philadelphia.
And now for the last segment of our episode, the one that everyone's been waiting for, because this is the place where Clayton or I, but typically Clayton, put our foot in our mouth. So get ready for, you know they're a knucklehead when. So my one for today is really straightforward. You know they're a knucklehead when they show a client a comparison of a fully insured premium to a self-insured maximum. Walk me through, walk me through why that's a knucklehead definition. <laughs> Correct. Absolutely. The simplest way to think about it is that as they show the fully insured premium, they're showing the best case scenario under fully insured. Um, and they are showing the worst case scenario under the self-insured maximum. So it's best case versus worst case, as opposed to best case, best case, or worst case, worst case. And so the the thing that drives me nuts about this is I get that if you're considering a self-insured program, any insurance program, you should think about what is the expected, what's the probability of the expected, and then what's the downside case, and then also what's the upside case. Like those are the things you should go through. And where it drives me nuts is when they show the fully insured and it's just here's expected slash uh, your actual cost and then they compare it to the maximum. And the reason that it drives me nuts is that those things are connected in that if you hit the maximum on a captive on self-insurance, it's because you had a crappy year. And if that happens, what's going to happen at their next renewal if they had stayed fully insured? Your favorite expression, they're going to get their teeth kicked in. <clears throat> and the reality is based on their size and and how far off their claims are, it's a renewal increase of probably 25% on the very low end to upwards of 40, 45. We've seen 75 and triple digit increases. But you're right. So that's that's my comment is that the actual worst case scenario fully insured doesn't happen until day 366. It's what your renewal is where you're paying for your your bad claims. Right. Not to plug our prior episode, but you should go listen to our prior episode where we talked about deferred, not insured. And this is just an example of it. It's rearing its ugly head again in that the, the, these two things are linked. They're dynamic. You can't have a terrible year in self-insurance and not also see some of that same impact in the fully insured world. And I think that's why it frustrates me so much is that a lot of the brokers that are out there like to think of these as two independent, completely independent things. Yeah. And, and the thing that I would add, you, you mentioned your the three areas, best case, or three criteria to look at, best case, worst case, and expected, and then the likelihood of each. The other thing that ties into our previous podcast, plug 8020 with Pareto Health, hashtag trending, um, is that in one scenario, fully insured, you have no ability to influence what your claims are going to be. And so your probability of outcome is is totally set at the start as opposed to being self-insured where you now have the ability to influence what your claims are going to be. You also have the ability to influence what the the health and the consumption of healthcare of your population is driving towards better health and, and wiser choices. So it's a, it's a sliding scale or moving target, if you will, and what your potential outcomes could be in self-insured. Just teasing this through or thinking this through a little bit, we, we need to do one of our entire episodes just around the concept of the spreadsheet. A spreadsheet that just shows a bunch of columns for different insurance products, one-year rates, min, max, et cetera, doesn't hit on the levers, and most importantly, isn't a multi-year or a dynamic spreadsheet. As you know, it drives us nuts. nuts. And so maybe let's let's make a mental note of that uh, and you're, we'll come back and do a whole episode on that. You're saying spreadsheet, right? Just want to make sure that you're not saying something that's going to get us banned or, or censored. Yeah, I have no idea what you think I said, but I definitely meant to say spreadsheet. Okay, great. Yeah, I did not say spread stuff around. Spread manure? Right, I did not say that. Got it. So knucklehead test. 
if they're comparing maximum on a self-insured or captive product to a fully insured without highlighting that those are in fact linked together and that there's a relationship between the two on a multi-year basis, you're dealing with a knucklehead. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to today's episode of 8020 with Pareto Health. We love hearing from you. If you have a question or an episode suggestion, please drop us an email at 8020@paretohealth.com. That's 8020@paretohealth.com. Dive deeper into 8020 by visiting us at paretohealth.com/podcast. Lastly, make sure you follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you don't miss an episode.